0: Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning again, everyone. Tad, I've known you a long time. I've never heard you get choked up. Three in a row. That was amazing. Great job. We've been working our way through uh, the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings, but this morning we're going to pause that for one week and uh, instead look at Romans chapter 8 as we consider this morning the significance of the resurrection. If you uh, would like to turn there in a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you. And uh, it's my privilege this morning to uh, spend the next 35 minutes or so uh, helping us try to answer that question that's on the screens. Uh, Jesus rose or he rose, so what? We're gonna think this morning about that claim. Uh, the, The day we observe today is in many ways just like every other Sunday. Christians gather because we believe each Sunday that Jesus rose on a Sunday. And yet today especially we commemorate this as the central claim of our faith. The, the Bible teaches that Jesus was executed and buried on a Friday. and That his followers mourned that Friday night, that Saturday morning, that Saturday afternoon, that Saturday night. And yet there was no mourning on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead. But that wasn't simply a case of what we might call resuscitation. Jesus didn't come back in exactly the same way that he was. No, it was a resurrection. That difference is very important because you see, Jesus on that Sunday morning had been gloriously renovated. He was the same and yet he was different. He had undergone something that caused a magnificent metamorphosis. His body was transformed in such a way that he would never again face sickness or death. Many people interacted with him confirming these unusual details. You'll find uh, evidences of it scattered throughout what Christians call the New Testament. That part of the Bible that was written after Jesus came. Friends, According to the Scriptures, those are the essential facts of that first Easter Sunday. But if we assume all of that's historically accurate, we're still left with that question. So what? What is the significance of the fact that Jesus rose again? A Jewish man was nailed to a cross, hoisted in the air, naked, battered, and scorned. He slowly suffocated to death while Roman soldiers mocked Him and most of His followers scattered in fear. And then somehow He rose again. But what makes that singularly significant? Why is it that all these years later, people are still talking about it? I mean, the, the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people. We're not talking about any of them except one. Why was Jesus' death and resurrection of unique significance? Well, one way Christians respond to that question is by explaining that Jesus' resurrection was the final capstone in his victory, meaning that Jesus died for sinners and he rose to prove his death was satisfactory to God. So everyone who believes in Jesus, turning from sin and turning to him, gains new life, and is welcomed into a personal relationship with God. Amen? Many of us have experienced that. We might call that answer to this question the the street-level view of resurrection. That's the street-level significance. If you were to look up your, your house or your apartment or your dorm room and Google Earth, you could see A street-level view of your residence. And yet, that's not the only view. You see, Jesus' resurrection means, yes, that people like you and me can be welcomed into a personal, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing's more important than that. Because that's a relationship in which there is acceptance and love, forgiveness and care from God to us. But that's not the whole story. Because if we keep zooming out by powers of 10, then we gain an increasingly comprehensive understanding of what it is that we're commemorating this morning. We can go zooming out all the way into the heavenlies. And if we do, then we uncover the most comprehensive view of what Jesus accomplished. And it's that comprehensive view we want to think together about this morning. Oddly enough, to do that, then to zoom way out, we actually have to zoom way in. Zoom way in on something that each and every one of us experience with great regularity. See, the Bible says that the resurrection accomplished something in the heavenlies that transforms something right here on earth. The resurrection of Jesus secured and guarantees the resurrection of all Christians and all creation. How do we know that? Well, We know that because of something the book of Romans tells us about our sufferings. Our sufferings, you see, point to the glories of our future resurrection. Now, If you've heard a lot of Easter sermons, this will be an unusual one, not because it's uh, in some way novel or I've developed a new doctrine. If so, you ought to run for the doors. But rather, because it's just not normally a text we would think about for Easter Sunday. But it does give us a fresh view on something so important. I want to think with you about suffering and how suffering relates to why the resurrection matters so much. Suffering is to human beings what the sky is to birds. It's the sphere we exist in every day. Now, sure, we kind of dress things up and cover it up, but in reality, we all have experienced pain, and many of us are in pain from some variety of difficulties today. I think we need actually know persuading of the fact that suffering is a problem. Take, for example, the pandemic. In just over a year, some three million people have died from it. And somewhere around a half a million here in these United States. The collective stress of the whole world in trying to prevent those numbers from being even higher that we've been dealing with has been nearly unbearable. And that is just one teeny tiny example of suffering. No one is immune from the sting of hardship. And some days, doesn't it seem like suffering is supreme? I mean, Christian or atheist, Buddhist or Muslim, in this regard, we're all the same because suffering shows no partiality. You might make it slightly longer before tragedy, but you'll get there eventually. Are you encouraged you came this morning? (laughs) In fact, we are all doomed to the ultimate form of suffering, namely death and what comes after. We all carry about in our bodies the certainty that death will come knocking. And if you live long enough, everybody you love will die, because even the strongest among us will grow weak and breathe their last. And yet, would you listen to what Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says about suffering? It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of what's going to be revealed to us. That strikes me as a rather astonishing thing to say. And even more astonishing that Paul applies it to himself. Because this man who wrote Romans, the Apostle Paul, when he wasn't in prison for preaching the gospel, then he was being threatened and abandoned, robbed, and beaten near death. And yet, that person said this. That person said, what we will get later is so much better than what we have today. The two aren't worth comparing. Suffering was the welcome mat that greeted Paul to another day. And yet he said, present sufferings are not worth comparing with future glory. And what he means is that for the Christian, your future is so exponentially superior to today. You simply cannot speak of them in the same way that simply our anticipation of what's to come causes a change in our experiences of hardship. Suffering today is, in a sense, swallowed up by the glories of tomorrow. But let's be honest. Try telling that to the the mom who for months on end had to work at home with a two-year-old screaming around her leg and a six-year-old doing Zoom school for seven hours. Uh, Try telling that to the single woman in her 40s who's always longed to be married and feels lonely every day because she's still alone. Try telling that to the 20-year-old who never knew his dad or the teenager with anxiety so severe it takes warlike courage just to leave the house try telling that to the person with an unseen disease that affects every moment of every day none of those people are likely to want their picture by romans 8:18 8, and yet it's right there in our bibles and if it doesn't strike you as a bit offensive then let me point you to another passage where paul talks about the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he addresses the exact same topic, and he even calls our trials light and momentary. How can a miscarriage you never actually get over be momentary? How can, and in what sense, is cancer light? How is watching an aging parent slowly forget everything brief and insignificant? Romans 8.18 gives an answer to that. It tells us that one can compare a, a, a thimble of water to all the oceans of the world. That they're in some way congruent. And yet the future we Christians anticipate is so much better. There is no comparison to be made. The point here is not that we would minimize suffering, but that we would maximize what comes after suffering. Now, how can that possibly be? Well, I think the answer to that question actually answers that question. So, would you journey with me for a few minutes as we try to uncover what God's response is to these things that we face so often? Romans eight eighteen is part of a paragraph, and that paragraph is meant to explain what verse eighteen raises. So, let me read the rest of the paragraph. Verse 19 says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see... We eagerly wait with it with it for patience. On the heels of Paul's audacious claim in verse 18, he turns to prove it in verse 19 by personifying creation. In other words, what he's saying is that the stars and the trees, the mountains and the flowers, the ladybugs and the Easter, Easter lilies, these were all created with the intention of That they would be the theater of the glory of God. That what God created would magnify its maker. That's why there is something rather than nothing. That's what even the physical created world God created is for. And originally, it did so. It was very, very good at it, actually. Because everything God made was in sync with God who made it, And so the physical world knew no death or decay. All was in harmony. But clearly today we know that's no longer the case. First, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden sinned, and then all who came after them have done the same. And this sinfulness fractured and frustrated the harmony of creation itself. Now think about that for a minute. In God's view, so serious is our rebellion against Him that it caused a breaking in the physical realm. Consequently, Paul says that creation has been groaning ever since. Groaning because it can't fulfill that for which it was made. Like a Maserati in a traffic jam, The physical world is in agony because it can't do that for which it was created. A few days ago, a report you may have seen came out that sought to explain the origin of COVID-19. There's been a lot of debate the last few days about whether that report got it right. I'm dumb, but I'm smart enough to know I shouldn't enter into that. I'm no epidemiologist, however, I do know that the story didn't go way back far enough. You see, COVID-19 didn't begin in 2019. That wasn't its real origin. Every disease, every earthquake, every bear ravaging a helpless deer, every flood destroying someone's home. In the ultimate sense, these are all the results of humanity rejecting God. They're the the natural consequences, if you will, of living in a fallen world. Directly or indirectly, the physical world brings about suffering because our brokenness broke the harmony between that which God made and the one who made it. You see, God put his people on earth to, to rule over what he made to image him by running his world. And yet, because Adam and Eve rejected God's rule, they fell into disharmony with God and disharmony with each other. And that broke even the physical realm. And so creation has been groaning ever since for something to be different. But notice what verse 22 says about that groaning. it tells us that this groaning isn't the groaning of pointless suffering. It's not the groaning for no reason at all. No, it is the the groaning of a woman in labor. Now, I'm aware I should be careful here. But I think we could put it this way. Every mother knows what's to come. And therefore, those months of pregnancy and hours of labor are endurable because in the end, it's worth it. Is that fair, moms? Today, creation is trapped in an endless cycle of calm and chaos, of death and birth, of beauty and horror. And yet, verse 21 and 22 tell us it won't always be this way. That the groaning of creation is not the groaning of pointlessness, but the groaning of a mom in labor longing to hold her child. Creation will be set free, you see. The emptiness of hurricanes, the worthlessness of flash floods, the pain of pandemics are temporary. The groanings of this fallen world will not last forever because they will give birth to glory. But it's not only creation that groans, the passage tells us. No, it's Christians who groan too. You might consider later today with somebody, perhaps at the dinner table, reading the rest of Romans 8. Because the passage is all about how we have, Christians can have confidence and assurance that what God has said is true. And it organizes it by these groanings. The groanings of creation, the groanings of Christians and then we won't read it it together but the the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Christians groan because suffering is everywhere. We face hardships of various kinds constantly. Following God doesn't somehow mean mean you get a pass on difficulties. And in a sense, even our best days are hard. I read this week one theologian who said this, in this creation, no experience is untainted by pain, even if it is only the pain of knowing that that experience cannot last. That is a zinger. Why is that? Well, it's because our sense of agony is our longing for God to complete the work of creation and the work of salvation. This is why we groan. You see, when someone believes the gospel, God sends the Spirit to take up residence within him or her. And from then on, God is no no longer only out there, but God is in here. Amen? God's put His Holy Spirit within. So... The Holy Spirit's address is wherever you are, Christian. God is with you all the time. And beloved, this Spirit serves as the divine guarantee that one day our groanings will cease. You see, uh, present pain has a shelf life while coming glory never expires. What that means is that COVID-19 and racism and pornography and global warming and rage and bitterness and cancer and molestation, slothfulness, lying, pride, poverty, abandonment, abuse, idolatry, gluttony, anxiety, greed, migraines, deception. They don't get the final word. Our groaning free future will be ours when we experience what verse 23 talks about. If you look there, you'll see the word adoption, which is then explained by the redemption of our bodies. What Paul is telling us is that the resurrection of Jesus secured already and guarantees the resurrection of all Christians and all creation. The resurrection secured our resurrection the resurrection guarantees that all the disharmony and pain that exists today will come to an end. Christian, Jesus' resurrection secured your adoption into God's family. Right now, we experience the spiritual benefits of that. Things like forgiveness of sin, being made right with God, like never having to fear His wrath again, like being welcomed into a spiritual family in which there is no longer the hostility between people, but rather the harmony of those who love God being in love with one another. These are some of the spiritual benefits we enjoy today. And yet, there's more to come. We will experience even a physical resurrection. You see, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own. We might say that there's a day in the future when we'll be given Jesus' DNA and we'll get bodies like His, ones that never fall apart. Can I get a hallelujah? (laughs) On that day when Christ returns, we will still be ourselves and yet we'll be transformed. Never again subject to death, disease, decay. God will fill the whole world with his splendor. Creation will then know the freedom of being able to do that for which it was made. And we too, brothers and sisters, will join right in. We will have bodies fit for eternity, bodies untainted by sin and free from any form of suffering ever again. We will be with God. We will be without rebellion against God. Pain will end. Cell phones will not ring. (laughs) Joy will be unceasing. Now how do we know that will happen? Because it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, we know it will happen because Jesus rose again. We know it will happen because the Spirit has been given to us to continually convince us and remind us that Jesus rose again and his transformed body is the prototype of the resurrection bodies each one of us will receive. And in fact, this aerial view of what's coming in the future is so grand that it will affect even the physical world. Romans 8 asserts that present pain is not worth comparing with future glory. Church, this means that all of your best days lie ahead. And that one day, all your painful days will lie behind. Yet the opposite is true for those who reject Jesus. See, the other side of the coin is that people who refuse to turn from sin and trust Christ's death and Christ's life will not enjoy a resurrected, pain-free, God-filled future, but rather the exact opposite. You're not a Christian, it is our tremendous privilege that you are here today. And God's invitation to you is that you would come to believe that Jesus is the God man who lived a perfect life, the only one. And therefore, because he lived the perfect life, he was able to die a substitutionary death, meaning. He subbed himself in his death for all who would ever trust him. And then he rose again in victory. So this means that Jesus' death and Jesus' life can be yours. Not if you clean yourself up or somehow start attending church all the time or give a lot of money or stop a particular bad habit but rather if you just cast yourself on him for mercy. This is what we Christians hold most dear. It is the gospel. And earlier in the book of Romans, in the same chapter actually, we see what we Christians hold most dear. And it explains what I'm saying in just one little tiny section of two verses. Look with me at verse 10, would you? says, now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Meaning, if Christ is in you, your body is still going to... You, you, you're going down. You're not going to make it. We're all going to die. The Bible is painfully honest. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So Christians are people today who are physically headed for a physical death, but spiritually already alive and well. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus secured and guarantees the resurrection of all Christians and all creation. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that is the invitation for you. Maybe you're ready right now. If so, go for it. Turn from sin and turn to Him in your own words. God hears, God will respond, and you will be saved. If you've got more questions, there's a room full of people who would love to visit with you on the patio after. If you're already a Christian, though, what's the significance of this paragraph that we've considered this morning uh, for you? Well, friend, of course, on Easter, we want to say enjoy the risen Lord. But in what way? Well, this text says that by the Spirit, you are to eagerly wait for Jesus to return. Some days that's easy. Some days that's astonishingly difficult. But as we wait, may we remember that our groanings and our suffering are being used by God to wean us off this world and prepare us for the next. And the groanings, far from testifying that the gospel isn't true, are are confirming it because we're groaning that this would come to an end. And we have the confidence it will. Because God will give birth to the new creation. And in the new heavens and new earth, we will be with him and with each other and without anything hard forever. Even physically. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have been saved. And in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Father, we pray that you would use your word now to do that which only you can do. That is to change us. To foster in us a deepened love for you. I pray wherever each individual is in their own spiritual journey that you would use this, God, to help them either become a Christian or grow in faith as a Christian. We thank you that you tell us not only things that are easy to hear, but things that are hard to hear yet true. And ultimately, all that we've talked about today is of tremendous hope and joy and positivity. Because even our individual suffering points us to the significance and glory and truthfulness of the fact that Jesus rose again. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.